Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, the managing editor of LARB, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. Who's on the show today? We have a really exciting guest today, Zakil Reed Amar, who is a constitutional law scholar. He teaches at Yale. He is the author of The Constitution Today, and he will be speaking with our legal affairs editor, Don Franzen. Ooh. Yes, a very relevant conversation. Oh, and they yeah. will be discussing the Electoral College, the attack on the Constitution from our current administration, and many of the other legal issues that are relevant to us in these sad times. I'm really excited for this show. I'm Don Franzen. I'm the legal affairs editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books, and I'm speaking today with Akhil Ridamar, who is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University. Akhil is the author of several numerous books, really, including America's Unwritten Constitution and, most recently, a book published last fall, The Constitution Today. He's the winner of numerous awards from both the American Bar Association and the Federalist Society, and he joins us today from Yale University, where he teaches. Thank you very much, Akhil, for taking time today to speak with us. Thanks for having me. We want to start with the issue that I think is in a lot of people's minds right now, which is many people feel that the wrong person is in the White House. The person who's in the White House did not, despite tweets to the contrary, win the national popular vote, yet under our electoral college system, he won the electoral college. Now, Akhil, you've written on this subject a lot, including in your most recent book, The Unwritten Constitution, and you formulated a plan that a lot of people see as a solution to the electoral college issue. It's come to be known as the Amar plan. Could you talk about that? How could we fix this in future elections so we don't have, once again, the person who loses the national popular vote going into the presidency? And Don, you did put your finger on it by talking about how this is an idea for future elections. As for what happened in November, they played both of them, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, by a certain set of ground rules. And the ground rules were electoral college ground rules. And had we had a national popular vote system in place, each one of them might have played the game somewhat differently. So we can't know for sure who would have won if they had both been trying to win the national popular vote. The interesting question is, could we move to a national popular vote system in the absence of a constitutional amendment. Of course, we could amend the Constitution, but that's notoriously difficult to do. It requires two-thirds of the House of Representatives and two-thirds of the senators and three-quarters of the states, and that's not such an easy thing to do. And so several years ago, in fact, in the aftermath of the Bush-Gore election of 2000, as I was thinking about that election, where once again, the Electoral College winner and the popular vote winner diverged, I was asking myself, is it possible to imagine a way of moving to direct national election without a constitutional amendment? A kind of, is it possible to improvise a system of direct election? And it turned out, I just put this on a blog post, really, in, on the one-year anniversary of Bush v. Gore, uh, December of 2001, I said, 
actually, I think there are a couple of ways that this could happen, and the story is told in more detail in the new book, The Constitution Today. And here are the two hair-brained, perhaps, plans that I came up with. One has come to be known as the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Someone out there maybe saw this idea, and it was simultaneously put forth by one other important academic, Dean Robert Bennett at Northwestern. And the basic thought is, okay, each state legislature today is given authority under the Constitution to decide how electoral votes are allocated. Almost all of the state legislatures have, for most of the last century, devised a winner-take-all system. They're going to let the people of the state vote. Whoever gets the most vote in that state gets all the electors. Maine and Nebraska have a slightly modified version of that, winner-take-most. Whoever wins the state gets most of the state's electors, but not all of them, and we have a popular vote within each state. And the Constitution doesn't require that. That's just what states have chosen to do for the 20th and early 21st century. But what if, I you know, just wondered aloud, individual state legislatures said instead, actually, we're going to give our electoral votes not to the person who wins the most votes in this state, but who wins the most votes nationally. A state is permitted to do that. A state legislature could choose to do that. But, then I speculated, I can understand why state legislatures might hesitate to do that because they'd be telling the candidate, pay no attention to winning this state. Pay attention to winning the national vote, but don't come out to California. It doesn't matter whether you win California or not. Why would California do that unilaterally? The answer is maybe it wouldn't, but California might be willing to pass a law in its state legislature that say, we in California will give the person who wins the national popular vote all of our electoral votes if and only if, enough other states also follow suit, such that together we add up to 270 electoral votes. And if so, then whoever wins the national popular vote would win the electoral votes for us states, and together we add up to 270 or more, and that suffices to guarantee that whoever wins the national popular vote will win 270 electoral votes and therefore the presidency. And this idea has come to be known as the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. A bunch of state legislatures have actually passed this law. It didn't go into operation in the last presidential election, but it could for the next one. If enough other states join the bandwagon, then both candidates will know in advance in 2020 that the basic game is to win the most votes nationwide rather than 270 electoral votes decided state by state by state in the traditional way. Now, there's one other way that in 2020 and beyond we could move to direct national election, and that requires even a less process than getting all these states to pass all these laws. I posit a world in which the presidential candidates of the two major parties basically agree in advance to abide by national popular vote rules. And if they agreed, let's say, in, on national television and national debate, and their vice presidential running mates also agreed, I try to show in this book how they could actually make that deal stick, such that they'd be agreeing in advance to abide by the national popular vote rather than the state-by-state -state account that we're also accustomed to. And those are two different ways of getting to direct national election in fact, without a formal constitutional amendment, and just in case some of your audience is wondering, like, where did he you know, come up with these wacky ideas? <laughs> we in America improvised a direct election of senators way before the Constitution was amended 
the 17th Amendment to provide for direct election senators. Remember, the original Constitution said state legislatures pick senators. But well before the 17th Amendment, a whole bunch of states had improvised systems, a little bit like the national popular vote mechanism that I was envisioning, the national popular vote interstate compact, and this resignation idea. Individual states had actually improvised systems of direct election. Here's, I'll give you the most elaborate version. It's called the Oregon Plan, but it's really studying history led me to think maybe there's, there are ways of sort of working around things. Under the Oregon Plan, way back when, the beginning of the 20th century, before the Constitution has been amended, here's what Oregon says. On election day, the Oregon voters vote for Oregon House of Representatives, Oregon Senate, Oregon Governor. They vote for members of the U.S. House of Representatives and... Technically, the Oregon legislature will pick the United States Senator from Oregon, but we're going to have a ballot such that there's this senatorial preference poll. On the ballot, the voters will say whom they prefer for U.S. Senate. And the candidates for statewide office will pledge, if they want, to abide by the popular vote winner. And on the ballot itself will appear for state legislature the name of the candidate, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, and also whether they've pledged or refused to pledge to support the popular vote winner. Now, as a practical matter, you know, people running for office don't want to tell the voters that they don't respect their intelligence and judgment, so everyone pledges, and that turns out to be a system of direct popular election of senators, even in the absence of a federal constitutional amendment. One final example, we have a strong two-term tradition for the presidency way before we amend the Constitution to say two terms. And the two-term amendment is consequential. I think Barack Obama could have won a third term in his own right. And probably Dwight Eisenhower could have. Maybe Ronald Reagan could have. Maybe even Bill Clinton could have. So this is a consequential amendment. This amendment that says two terms and no more. But even before that amendment, we had a tradition of two terms, and we had a tradition of two terms beginning really with Washington because he steps away, and then Jefferson steps away after two terms, and Madison and Monroe, and thus a tradition is born. Well, if you take that seriously, it leads you to think, oh, well, could we improvise traditions, for example, of direct election? Could candidates agree in advance that they'll accept the national popular vote in the same way that presidents, in effect, say, I won't run for a third term. They make kind of promises to the American people of that sort, even before the Constitution was amended. Very, very interesting ideas. It would be interesting to see if one candidate challenged the other to accept the national popular vote and what the other candidate would say about that. Exactly. You know, throwing down the deer. But one important thing is these rules have to be decided in advance. It can't be after we tally the thing, one person says, oh, since I won the popular vote, that's really the one that should count, because that wasn't the game that they were playing. They were playing the Electoral College game. And so it is important for the American people and the candidates to know in advance how the game's going to be scored. And now with respect to the National Interstate Voter Compact, or I'd like to just call it the Amar Plan, because that's easier to say, With respect to that, a number of states have already adopted legislation to that effect. Isn't that right? Indeed. I think uh, 10 or 11 states that together make up about 160-some electoral votes, so more than halfway to the 270 that would be required to put the plan in operation. So we are, though it's been flying below the radar screen, in a whole bunch of places, we're kind of partway there. Actually, well, here's the specific data. It's 10 states and the District of Columbia 
that have already passed laws to this effect saying, we'll do this if enough other states join the bandwagon, and together that group totals 165 electoral votes, more than 60% of the 270 that would be necessary for it to go into effect. So we just need a little more than 100, 110, 108 more electoral votes, states representing that amount, and then this plan would go into effect for the next It would. Election. Now, so far, the red states have been very hesitant. The blue states have been more inclined. And this election might reinforce the sense that the Electoral College today really leans in favor of the Republican Party. It favored George W. Bush in 2000. It tilted toward Donald Trump this time around. I try to suggest, actually, that just as a political scientist, my own view is that current Electoral College isn't strongly skewed in favor of one party or another. In 2000, it was very easy to imagine, and some of us were predicting, actually, that Al Gore might win in the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And had the weather been different on Election Day, had George W. Bush run up the score more in Texas and lost in Florida, Gore would have won the electoral vote even if he'd lost the national popular vote. In 2004, John Kerry came, I think if 50,000 votes had changed hands in Ohio, John Kerry would have won in the Electoral College even though he lost the popular vote by about 3 million. So I don't think, in general, the Electoral College today is skewed toward the Republican Party. It favored Trump for very specific reasons in the last election, having to do with where Hispanic Americans were distributed. They tended to be distributed in places where Hillary Clinton didn't need them. She was already going to win California. There are a lot of Hispanics in California, so those weren't very useful votes. There were a lot in Texas, but she was going to lose Texas, so they didn't really help. They helped her in Colorado, but they really didn't help her in places like Ohio, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, and the Hispanics that existed in Florida weren't actually the subset of Hispanics who were more inclined to Hillary Clinton. But that's a story just about Clinton and Trump and Hispanics, and not a general story. In general, here's why the system isn't skewed. You might not like it, or maybe you do, but it's not really skewed because Republicans in general win more states overall, and every state gets an extra two electoral votes because it's got two senators. So that favors Republicans. They tend to win more states overall, and especially states where not that many people live, the big boxes in the Midwest, like Wyoming and Montana. But the Democrats tend to, in general in the modern period, win more of the really popular states, six or seven of ten big states. And because of winner-take-all, they get a big bump up in the Electoral College because they are more often than not winning the Californias and New Yorks of the world. And these two tendencies today tend to balance each other. Republicans win more states, but Democrats win more big states, winner-take-all. And so the system, even though it's imperfect, isn't really strongly skewed. Very, very interesting. Well, your book, The Constitution Today, came out last fall, but a lot has happened since <laughs> September. Indeed, a lot has happened since January 20th. So I wanted to bring up some of those topics. We've seen, for example, well, let's start with the challenge to President Trump under the Emoluments Clause. There's already been, I think, three days after he took the oath of office, there was already a suit filed by a public interest organization claiming that his foreign holdings and foreign entanglements disqualified him or created a conflict with the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, something that I think very few people have thought about. What about that issue? Is that something that we will be hearing more about as the year goes on? Well, these are 
prominent lawsuits, so you'll be hearing about them, and I haven't written about it in great detail. You'll be hearing a lot about whether anyone has standing to bring these suits, whether individual citizens are going to even be heard on the merits in court. For me, the bigger issue to really tee up is the following point, and I'm going to read you now from the Constitution, Article 1, Section 9, and it says, no person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States shall, and here's the key language, without the consent of Congress, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Now, because you're in a world where the President's party also controls both the House and Senate, if these lawsuits were ever to gain traction, you should not be surprised to see Congress just signing off on the whole thing. Maybe carte blanche without even demanding detailed records and the like. And although there's nothing in the new book that talks about the Emoluments Clause, because the book which was published, you know, which uh, was published in September, but which sort of went to print in the summer, thought that Trump might win, but wasn't predicting that Trump would win, and this would be the question on everyone's mind. So there's not a lot on the Emoluments Clause, but there is a lot about how our branches of government interact with our party system. And maybe we'll talk about this if we talk about impeachment, which you know is also a topic that some people are banding about. In a world where the president's party also controls the legislature, some of the relevant checks and balances in the Constitution, like the Emoluments Clause, look very different. Since Lyndon Johnson, every single president except Jimmy Carter has faced an opposition House of Representatives for at least part of his term in office. So Richard Nixon did, and Gerald Ford did, and Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, and Obama all faced opposition Houses of Representatives for at least part of their term in office. Trump does not at this point. And so the Emoluments Clause, in my view, is not going to have a lot of bite. I predict, not just because the court cases are perhaps going to stall on the issue of citizen standing, but even if they don't, Congress can always just say, fine by us. Yet it would be quite extraordinary for Congress literally to say, okay, it's fine for you to have foreign emoluments. I mean, that would be a very unusual thing for a Congress to do. In fact, yes, no, no, no precedent seen, for but it, But right? we've seen lots of unusual things. And let's be blunt, this Congress is willing to do all sorts of things to accommodate President Trump as long as he signs the bills that the Congress really cares about, which are things like tax cuts and other fiscal priorities. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. I'm Don Franzen, and I'm speaking today with Akhil Ridamar, who is the author of the recent book, The Constitution Today. Another big issue that's come up, also quite extraordinary, is the tension between the executive branch and the judiciary. We have the events that unfolded following the first travel ban, the Ninth Circuit finally ruling pretty much on the merits that it represented a violation of due process. We have comments from the sitting president undermining or attacking the 
authority or integrity of the judiciary. This is something that we haven't seen, I don't think, at least that I can recall. What are your thoughts about all that? My thoughts are, and I'm a Democrat, and I voted for Hillary Clinton, but first, the Ninth Circuit's rulings were pretty aggressive, and I'm not 100% sure that they would have been endorsed by the swing justice on the United States Supreme Court. That President Trump's comments denigrating judges by calling them so-called judges was unfortunate. That some of his criticism, however, was on the merits, and he had some, I think, valid legal points. The Office of Legal Counsel, which are very well-respected lawyers, had signed off even on 1.0. Of course, now we have a version 2.0 of that executive order. That we want to distinguish between whether it's a good idea or even a fair or a nice idea and whether it's an illegal and unconstitutional idea because it could be dreadful policy and yet still not unconstitutional. But here's what I, the most important point. So I'm trying to bend over backwards to be fair to the president, in part because I voted against him. And I think it's very important that those of us who voted against him try to be sober and not cry wolf at every occasion and be very measured because he overstates and we have to be careful not to respond in kind. So I would say the most important thing that's happened in the relationship between the presidency and the judiciary, the thing that historians will remember, is his nomination to the Supreme Court, because that's a 30-year thing. And on that, I think he chose about as well as it was possible to imagine. I don't agree with everything that Judge Gorsuch has ever said or likely will say, but I can tell you, and I don't know him well, that I don't know of anyone that any Republican president would have nominated who's clearly superior, and I know of many people that many other Republican presidents might have considered, who I would say are distinctly not as impressive. And in the book, The Constitution Today, I sing the praises of Merrick Garland. I would have loved to see him on the court and confirmed. So, and just to remind the audience again, I was on Team Hillary. I was with her. But Trump picked a good one for the Supreme Court, and we should actually be happy about that because it could have been way, way worse. And so why am I happy? Because I think Judge Gorsuch is very intelligent and principled and not a partisan and not a hack and not a crony and doesn't even know Trump so well. So it doesn't come from the sort of the Trump circle has already, at least according to press reports, indicated that he did not appreciate the denigration of judges with the epithet so-called from the man who nominated him. So I thought that that showed real integrity on Judge Gorsuch's part. He has legal principles. He's an originalist of a certain sort. So is the great Hugo Black, Franklin Roosevelt's first appointment to the court. I believe in text history and structure. It's not just an idea that conservatives believe in. It cuts across party lines. And one interesting thing about Gorsuch is that although he has sterling educational credentials and their Ivy League type credentials, Columbia, Harvard, etc., he also comes from the heartland, from Colorado. And one deep schism in America that the election revealed. It goes back to our discussion of Electoral College. Is really America is divided in part coast against the center. It's also north against south, 
and cities against the hinterland. But there is a cultural division between an east against west even, but coast against the center. This is a fellow who has credibility with coastal elites, having gone to Columbia and Harvard Law School, the fellow being Judge Gorsuch, but who also comes from the center of the country where none of the other justices really except John Roberts comes from. And John Roberts left the Midwest long ago. Comforting to hear that you have some confidence in that selection. I'm, I'm and, such uh, an optimist, <laughs> you know, e- even after this election. Uh, maybe I'm clutching at straws, but um, well, and, in the and long of course, run, I'm betting on America. We do have to bear in mind that he's replacing Justice Scalia, so it won't really that much change how votes are going. It's the next appointment that really will be crucial to the future of the court. Again, depending on whether it's a balance shifting or a balance preserving next appointment, then we just don't know you know, what the next vacancy would be. But what I can just repeat is a President Marco Rubio or a President Jeb Bush or a President John Kasich or Mike Pence or Paul Ryan to pick other imaginable Republican presidents, they weren't going to pick anyone clearly better than Gorsuch and they could have picked lots of them, someone much worse. Another point I wanted to raise with you is something else quite unusual since January 2nd. We've heard the president call the press an enemy of the people, borrowing a phrase, I guess, from Ibsen originally. I'm not sure where where that term arose. But we have an unusual tension between the executive branch and the free press. Where do you see that? And what can we expect on that? Well, it just requires vigilance on the part of the press is not monolithic. And the press is in an interesting economic situation. The traditional business model that governed 30 years ago no longer really operates. This book, which collects my journalistic op-eds over 20 years, this book, The Constitution Today, is actually dedicated to Bob Woodward, who is my hero and one of the great investigative journalists of all time. I actually, just a few minutes ago, was sitting in the classroom with him. I sit in on a class he teaches one day a week here at Yale College. But the press can really, in the end of the day, not be any stronger than the citizenry. Because if people aren't paying attention to what the press is reporting, then the system just does not work. And so democracy really does require that ordinary citizens pay attention to public affairs the way they might pay attention to some important issue in their life, like, should I buy this house or not? To whom should I marry if I Mary, you know, is it time to have kids? If you're sinkly, you'd go and try to actually do a little research on who's a good plumber. And yet many citizens actually aren't that interested in really wrestling facts to the ground, which are available. We have Google. You actually can find the answer to some things, but a lot of citizens have become so distrustful. But they're not distrustful when it comes to spending their own money on something. They actually think that Consumer Reports is going to tell them, or Angie's List, or Amazon ratings. They do some investigation. There's all sorts of information out there, and they know how to access it when their own money is on the line, but they often choose to ignore it when the most important things are on the line, namely like the fate of the planet. They treat it as if it's just which team you root for, and there's not really a fact of the matter. It's just, well, I prefer the Lakers, or I prefer the warriors or whatever. And democracy fails when that happens. So there are issues about the press, but there are also ultimately issues about citizen responsibility. And this book is a meditation on the role of the press. One problem about the press, it's at the heart of the whole book, is the press tries to get stuff out fast. Journalism, from the French word jour, the day, the day, the hour, the minute, the nanosecond. 
And when they keep trying to get stuff out faster and faster and faster, are they sometimes sort of missing the bigger long-term picture, which is what constitutional law is supposed to be about? Not just what's happening every nanosecond, but what are the big issues that we need to understand in order to get policy right and discharge our responsibility as citizens? Well, that's why it's great to have a conversation like this with you, Akhil. We mentioned or you touched upon the issue of impeachment. You have a whole chapter about that in your book about Bill Clinton's impeachment. And of course, there's been hue and cry about impeachment of this president already, which again is something I can't ever remember happening so early in someone's term. Is this realistic? Is this something that people can even uh, seriously consider? I don't really think so. For the basic reason at the heart of my chapter on the Clinton impeachment, I'll come back to what I said earlier. The two-party system is deeply entrenched in America, and that two-party system interacts with the formal separation of powers between the legislature and executive. So when it came to emoluments, Congress can bless all sorts of emoluments, and when Congress is controlled by the same party as the president, you should expect that that might very well happen. When the Congress is controlled by the opposite party, you're going to get oversight upon oversight and hearing upon hearing. Now, what did that mean for the Clinton impeachment? That... If you were going to undo President Clinton's impeachment, I thought it was only right that Democrats who supported Clinton would have to be on board. And the Constitution, although not mentioning political parties explicitly in the impeachment provision, the Constitution does say that in order to be convicted by the Senate of the United States, you have to be two-thirds of the senators who vote against the president. And in a two-party world, neither party typically has two-thirds. And so a president is only going to be ousted if members of his, one day hers, own party vote that way. And there was almost no Democrat who was willing to oust Bill Clinton. And maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but you're not going to properly oust a president unless people, and undo a national election, unless basically the people who supported that person, in effect, turn against him. And that happened with Richard Nixon all sorts of sensible Republicans turned against Richard Nixon. Howard Baker, Lowell Weicker, um, Barry Goldwater, Mr. Republican, at the end of the day, goes to the White House and says, Mr. President, you have fewer than 10 votes in the Senate, and I'm not one of your supporters on this. So you have to go because you've lost the confidence, not just of the country generally, but your own base, your own party. And so Clinton, and that happened with Nixon, so rightly he left, and it didn't happen with Bill Clinton, so rightly he stayed. And I am not seeing evidence now that the basic heart and soul of the Republican Party has turned against this person who has managed to sweep them into power across the board. His party won not just the presidency, but the House and the Senate, and therefore the Supreme Court, because they're going to put Gorsuch on, and a majority of state houses across the country. So I don't see Republicans, even if the ones who don't love Trump, they are willing to hold their nose and say, yes, but we're going to dance with the one that brung us. This guy got us into power. Now we can pass our agenda, whether it's tax cuts for wealthy folks or other stuff. And unless he does something pretty unusual, because we knew who he was when we voted for him, they knew who he was. And so I haven't seen really evidence that they're turning against him in some strong way. Well, this brings us really to the last question I wanted to pose to you. As you've explained already, we have a situation where the executive branch is under President Trump's control. The legislature, both houses, are under Republican control. So that's two out of three. What we have left is the judiciary. 
is the checks and balance system that the founders of this country set up. Is it still working? Do we still have checks and balances? Well, and the judiciary and the Supreme Court is about to be, because right now it's four Republican appointees and four Democratic appointees, but Neil Gorsuch is going to be confirmed. And so it's going to be three for three. The legislature, both houses, House and Senate and the presidency and the judiciary are all going to be in Republican control. And Republicans have controlled the Supreme Court for my entire adult lifetime, since 1970. The House has gone back and forth. Senate has gone back and forth. The presidency has gone back and forth. But the Democrats have not had a majority on the Supreme Court since the late 60s, 1970. And that would have changed if Hillary Clinton had won. If she had won, that would have meant that she was carrying states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, in which case her party would have carried the Senate races in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Russ Feingold and Kate McGinty would have won against Johnson and Toomey. And therefore, she would have been present. She would have had a Senate majority. It would be Justice Garland, and it would be five Democrat appointees on the Supreme Court. But that's not going to happen. So what are the checks and balances if the House is Republican-controlled and the Senate and the judiciary and the presidency? Well, one check and balance that we haven't talked about quite as much, I mentioned it just very briefly in passing, is the check and balance of federalism and state houses. And we still have blue states. You live in one of them. I grew up in California, which is a very blue place. So we should expect to see some interesting confrontations, even legal, but contest challenges to the regime in Washington coming from states, especially blue ones. Just as under President Obama, we saw certain conservative states challenging him on Obamacare, on DAPA, his immigration relief executive orders, and the like. So when Obama was in control, conservative states challenged him in a variety of ways. And now that the entire federal government is in Republican hands, House, Senate, Judiciary, Presidency, you should expect to see some pushback from liberal states, states like California. And by the way, since we're talking about the judiciary, it's not just the Supreme Court, but eventually the lower federal court ranks will turn increasingly red. Many of them are blue, some of them quite deeply blue. The Ninth Circuit is very blue. And that's why I said earlier that what the Ninth Circuit thought about the executive order might not be the same as what the Supreme Court thinks about the executive order, because the Ninth Circuit is blue and the Supreme Court is not. Very, very interesting. So really, the moral of the story is it's time for liberals to become federalists, right? (laughs) Uh, And I've always believed in a healthy balance between state and federal government. My very first law review article was called Of Sovereignty and Federalism. And it was about how, interestingly, federalism gives opponents of the federal regime, the national regime, a chance to actually show their stuff that we've got a better plan and not just talk a good game as a minority in parliament or something, but actually show things on the ground. Many past presidents in the modern era have been actually opposition governors first. We could take Jimmy Carter, who was an opposition governor under uh, Richard Nixon, but also Ronald Reagan, also George W. Bush, also Bill Clinton. We could talk about also Rands like Mitt Romney and Mike Dukakis. So many of your past presidents actually have been governors, and many of these governors have actually been governors of one party when the other party controlled Washington, D.C. And so expect that to continue. And I actually think that's a good feature of our system. 
You don't even have to wait two years for the next election. There are going to be gubernatorial elections in Virginia and New Jersey later this year. And don't be surprised if Democrats take those two in a kind of backlash against the Republican domination of Washington, D.C. Very engaging conversation. Thank you so much for this time, Akil. I wanted to mention also for our LARB listeners and supporters that they will be able to spend an afternoon hearing you talk about these and other issues on April 8th this year, Saturday, April 8th. We will have you as our honored guest at a LARB luminary dinner in a home in West Los Angeles, and we look forward very, very much to continuing our conversation with you on these and other issues, the subject matter being the Constitution under the Trump presidency, which was what we talked about today. So thank you again very much for your time. Thank you, and can't wait to see you in person. All right. Take care now. I've been speaking with Yale's Professor Akhil Ridamar, the author of the recent book, The Constitution Today, about the subject of where we are with the Constitution under the Trump presidency. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 